Welcome to cross-examination. My name is Adam, and I'll be your host slash facilitator of discussion um, for tonight's event. First of all, thank you all for being here. Um, in case you don't know, cross-examination is a ministry of Aletheia Bible Fellowship, a resource with the goal of providing people with a meaningful understanding of Christian doctrine, their Bible, as well as connecting people to local church bodies. Our, our aim with cross-examination is for the local church to be fully convinced in what it is that they believe um, and to help articulate that in um, their everyday lives. Um, just a quick disclaimer before we you know, get into things tonight. Remember when discussing things like this, it can get heated, not to say that it will, but it can. Uh, at the end of the day, these three guys are all on the same page about the same basic truths of um, Jesus and what it is they believe, um, and they will make sure that you know that in the way that it is they communicate. You're not going to see a fist fight up here, so it's good. Um, <laughs> you, might, you might hear some weird technical terms, um, and if you do, I'll do my best to catch them. I got a little bell here. If they hear that, that means that these guys should back up and explain what it is they just said. This whole thing is meant to reach the common person and um, for you guys to be able to understand what it is that they're saying. It's supposed to be accessible for you guys. You shouldn't feel left in the dust based on how they're talking. Um, so there's that. Uh, as mentioned already, this ministry, cross-examination, is here to help us common people find a useful relationship with our sincere beliefs. To do this and to help facilitate discussion, we've spent the last month and even longer really farming questions from our friends, our family, people in our church, whatever it may be, our co-workers, um, so that we can really get into different questions we may have tonight. Um, with that said, um, hold the phone. I guess we'll talk about that later. Um, I'm going to let these guys introduce themselves so you're not left wondering any longer who they are. Um, so we'll just go down the line. You guys can say who you are, where you're from, and something that you like to do so that these people know that you're a person and you actually have likes and dislikes. So starting with you. So I'm Pastor Josh McGarry. I've been a pastor at Aletheia Bible Fellowship in southeast Portland for... 14, possibly 15 years. Um, <clears throat> what, are, what, are, what we like? It's something you like, you know? Something Is that I like. about yourself? I like writing, playing, listening to music. Hello, everyone. My name is John Schlafly. I am uh, one of the pastors and an elder at the Woodstock Bible Church off 52nd and Mitchell Street uh, near the Woodstock Park, if you're familiar with that area in southeast Portland. Um, I, my other life is I'm a high school English teacher at Clackamas High School, so that's where I spend most of my time during the day. And I enjoy most sports. Uh, bas basketball is my favorite, and it's been my passion for most of my life, one of my passions. I'm Pastor David Zemke. I'm a pastor at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Selwood, and I've been there for about nine years, roughly, and um, I really like to cook. Right on. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, my name is Jacob Browning. I am a member at Aletheia Bible Fellowship. Um, I've been associated with that church for about seven years, although I've been attending regularly for about a year now. And I really like lyrical hip hop. 
So before we go on, um, Jacob here is a representative. We call him an audience proxy. So we're going to ask these guys a question. They're going to you know, organically flow and answer the question. And at the end of that question, Jacob should be able to, if they did their job in speaking common language, spit back to them what they said. Um, and that's, that's meant so that none of you guys are being lost. So he's your representative up here. He's not part of the, the pastor or the panel of pastors here. So that's what Jacob's doing up here to make sure that no one gets lost along the way. So in case you didn't um, get the memo, tonight's topic is heaven and hell. Um, I'll let Josh here just give a real brief intro to that topic. So as Adam said, our topic is heaven and hell. Um, that is, I mean, that's a topic that has blessed and plagued Christianity, you know, from the beginning of time. Um, really what we're talking about is the afterlife and where do you go? And what does it mean to be with God in eternity? What does it mean to be without God in eternity? And any questions that you have um, in between that, which I assume could be a lot. It's a super, super controversial topic simply because um, everybody feels a certain way about it. They feel a certain way about you know, their relatives when, when they're lost or when children die or so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah, we picked it for tonight with these people. <laughs> so hopefully you guys have your questions ready. Okay, so for anyone, as per my usual spiel, for anyone that has ever, you know, witnessed a panel discussion like this, um, like if you've ever been to Comic-Con, <laughs> that's always my frame of reference, but um, if you have a question, you can line up like civilized people at the microphone, um, no throwing elbows, you know, this isn't the UFC, but line up at the microphone and we will get to your questions as quickly as possible um, and we'll rotate between live questions here if someone has a question on Facebook Live, which we'll be, we're streaming from right now, and our farmed question. We're going to rotate through those three banks of questions, and we'll get to as many as possible in the order that they come up. Um, so some basic rules. It's small up there, but I'll say them for you in case you can't read it. When asking your questions, please remember that your questions should be questions, not accusations. They should be questions, not your points or stories. They should be questions, not your answers to someone else's questions. That's what these gentlemen are for. And they should be respectful. These guys aren't getting paid extra money to extend their long Sundays. Um, so just be respectful of what they're giving to you guys uh, during this time. It's out of the goodness of their heart and the want to yeah, provide in this way. So just remember those things. If, if they or if I think that a question is, or an answer is not being respected or if a question is not pertinent to tonight's topic, which is heaven and hell, then they might respectfully decline to answer, not because they don't want to answer, but because we're focused on the topic of heaven and hell tonight. With that said, if you have that question that's not a part of that topic, you can seek one of these guys out maybe after the show or you can get in touch with them via whatever the phone or email, whatever they want. Um, that's their job, right, is to be there for you guys in that manner. So it's not that they don't want to. It's just that we're focused on a specific thing tonight. So please keep that in mind and be respectful of that and just be a good audience. Um, we have about, I don't know, a little less than 90 minutes to, to talk tonight. Um, as I said, we're going to rotate 
rotate through those um, three banks of questions. And yeah, I guess without further ado, we can get started. There's a lot of questions we have already banked. Um, there's a lot of you guys, so I'm sure some of you might pop up. The microphone doesn't bite, so don't be afraid to be the first one and set the tone. Be that guy or girl. Um, you can also, <clears throat> if you're too afraid to get in front of the microphone, which you know, public speaking is that's a thing. Um, you can always send the questions to the the comments on the Facebook Live thread too. So that works also. You can also uh, hashtag cross X, and we'll find questions that way as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Uh, for the sake of ease, I suppose we will just start person closest to me, which is Josh. So I'll ask Josh a question, he'll answer, and then these guys are free to piggyback um, however they see fit, and you know, they, they work in an organic way in case you've seen one of our, our events before. So um, when I feel that um, maybe they're done or it's exhausted, I might give Jacob a look and he can spit back, or if he has a confusion or you know, wants something clarified, we can do that. Um, and if nothing, we'll move on to the next question. So with all that said, let's get started. So the first question will be for Josh, and we're just going to jump right into it. It's the first question I have listed here. So Josh, this question is, how is an eternity in hell a just punishment for only a lifetime of sin? Good question. <laughs> How is an eternity in hell a just punishment <clears throat> for only a lifetime of sin? Uh, well, to, to give you the long and short of it, the reason, and hell is sort of, I was going to say colloquial here, but that's probably not a good way of putting it. Uh, <clears throat> hell is sort of a catch-all term that's being used when we're asking that question. It's a little more specific than that. But um, here's how it works. God created this place, hell, specifically for the angelic rebellion that took place. And God is infinite in, in nature. He doesn't end, right? And so when we sin against God, we are sinning against an infinite being, and therefore he is infinitely offended. And therefore the, the punishment for that infinite offense is also infinite in nature. It was meant specifically for creatures which, as far as we can tell, don't have the same sort of limitations as us. So I'm not gonna call them infinite, but they, they, they're not in space and time the way that we are. So when we partake in sin, what we are doing is we are sinning against, we are offending some, somebody, God, who is infinite and therefore what happens to us is we partake in an infinite punishment. That's the long and short of it. So I would just add that um, that question, like a lot of the questions, especially about hell, goes to fairness, it sounds like. Um, if, someone, if it takes someone four seconds to commit a crime here on Earth, we could potentially send them to jail for the rest of their life. So the time span is sometimes an irrelevant thing. So. When I think about these types of questions, one thing I like to do is invert it. So if we invert the question and ask, is it really fair for God to send someone like me to heaven for all eternity for, you know, just a, a small pittance of what, you know, I was able to do here on earth or just for this act of faith that I did when I, when I asked him to come into my life and when I 
committed to him? Is it really, am I really worthy of that level of eternal reward? And so um, the fairness question is a difficult one to navigate on human terms. And what Josh brought out about dealing with an infinite God is part of that. Um, but I think anytime we think about fairness, usually what we mean in this life is we want fairness if it's good for us. And in this sense, I think if you think about the question through that prism, um, it opens up our mind to the possibility that maybe our conception of fairness with regards to time or the length or the duration, and I, I do agree it's a good question, um, we have to sort of expand our mind a little bit in thinking about that. Yeah. There's not really anywhere else for me to go with this. <laughs> I mean, those are my two thoughts. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's the infinite sort of bit, and then it's really a question of fairness, and when you invert it, um, you get the, you have the same problems. Only none of us are worried because an infinite heaven is awesome, and none of us are worried about finding ourselves in an infinite heaven, accidentally or on purpose. So you know, hell hell is this big kind of stick, right? This this really bad thing we don't want to have happen. Or sometimes I I'll go double down on that stick analogy because often we do you know use it like a stick, believe or go to hell, burn, um, but. Heaven is actually, you know, as the flip side of it, it's, it's, that's a pretty serious thing to say you're here with our Lord Jesus for eternity. And we'll kind of hopefully get into more about eternity, but that part was great. Do you have any? Um, no, I think you guys both hit the nail on the head with the big picture from Josh and then kind of the metaphor with you, John. All right. Well, I should just say there's already like 12 questions that poured in. So if you're watching this or if you're here, we'll do our best to get to you. So uh, let's see. John, uh, if we're being good evangelists, how do you discuss heaven and hell with a world that wants to believe everyone goes to heaven? Pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, could you read again, please? Yeah. I kind of blanked out there after the first few no. words. <laughs> Uh, in being good evangelists, how do we discuss heaven and hell with a world that wants to believe that everyone goes to heaven? Okay. Um, yeah, and, and this touches on probably we anticipated maybe a universalist idea that everything's going to work out in the end, that kind of idea. Um, I would say this, that first of all, we can communicate here on earth. At least I find it's helpful to think about here on earth. Heaven and hell are obviously constructs that that exist outside of time. Um, but here inside of time, in our earthly existence, in our, human, in our humanity, we experience, I believe, um, tastes or hints of both of those things. When, when we experience something good, a blessing, something that by God's grace comes to us, we experience, I think, a taste of, and we have, the Bible says we have eternity in our hearts, we have a taste of the goodness of God. And we can only then imagine or extrapolate, this must be what heaven is like only times a billion. And in the same place, maybe not in our country or in our own current context, there are people who are living hellish existences right now. Very difficult circumstance. A lot of times um, in their situation, maybe not even of their choosing, but the result of other people's sin. And it would be tough to argue, um, I think, even on that level, um, that there's no meaning there, that it, it's all just kind of a pointless thing that we're kind of struggling through. And so I would say that I would start with the sense that God has given us hints, both of what life is like without him 
and also what life can be like with him. And we could go through the scriptures and talk about what both of those hints on, in both ways look like, but that might be one place that I would start. I guess I'm less worried about doing it in evangelism and more worried about doing it with just normal church people because the numbers say that a bunch of us who go to church and even some in the clergy don't believe in heaven and hell or at least don't believe in hell or, you know, there's a bunch of fine print there when you talk to them. So um, I I guess my first stop is my own people and let's get them squared away. (laughs) Um, Then, you know... In terms of being a Lutheran, we talk about this difference between law and gospel. And one of the things we say is the law just will sit and pick at you and eat at you. It always accuses. And you feel that. Whether you know it or not, you feel that weight of the law. I'm not living up to what God wants. I'm not living up to what my parents want. I'm not living up to what society thinks of me. Or I'm not getting what society says I should get. That's all the law business there. That's actually that that disconnect, that that sense of feeling something's not right, that's that entrance into hell, right? As Because we're separated from God. And so as we talk about this, either with my own people or with in an evangelistic sense, um, you know, I'm going to start talking about that, that we're already experiencing little bits and pieces of this separation from God. Um, and so uh, the other part, too, is I guess this would be like conversation number four, <laughs> This is not my believe in Jesus right now or you're going to hell right now. Um, You know, because that's not how that works. Um, And we have time to get that, get that, that understanding down um, and to become okay with it. Uh, So those are kind of my first initial moves is, man, I'm worried about my people. And two, um, we've got some time, you know, to, to really understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think that I think that the discussion on heaven and hell creates a strong psychological bookend for the human experience, and I think that's one of the things that John was alluding to, um, <clears throat> where you know human beings like they need to be able to pe- to tell the passage of time. That's if you take out if you take that out, it it really destroys the psyche. It's one it's one like form of torture. You need to be able to see night and day, for instance. You need to be able to know that um, daylight is coming. So I think, I think that that psychological bookend is really important. Um, but I, I agree with what David's saying. I think that there's this sort of four spiritual laws um, way of evangelizing, which isn't really founded in, in Scripture. Like, Scripture teaches, us, scripture teaches us to share our hope in Christ. And that hope is, it's tangible, you know? That, that hope isn't simply that heaven is coming in the future sometime after you die. It's that there's a transformative power that Christ has in our lives, and he can free us from the hellishness that we're in um, and, and open that door to a, a real relationship with God. And, and, and I would agree that the... Di- the <clears throat> The conversation about heaven and hell and the specifics of it, which oftentimes aren't really um, doctrinal in the sense that we need to be dogmatic. I shouldn't say that. Uh, it's gonna ding me. Um, they they don't they don't oftentimes matter to whether we are actually Christians or not. 
um, I think that oftentimes those conversations can wait. The specifics can wait. And I think David was alluding to that. Well, I'll say, too, the other way in on this is to say, really? Really all people go to heaven? Because I can think of some people that you don't want in heaven. Okay? Your sense of fairness is going to say, no, that's not okay. Right? The, the 20th century's biggest baddie, Hitler, are you really saying he's in heaven? And I'm hopeful that the power of Christ got to him in time. I don't think that happened, by the way. <laughs> Wouldn't it? But are, are you really saying you're okay that everyone goes? Because I got a whole list of people that I'm pretty sure you're not okay with saying went to heaven, right? We'll, we'll add on Stalin and Pol Pot and a few other, Charles Manson, although that's a little more recent one for us. You know, but like everyone... And as soon as you open the door for, okay, so only the good people go. Really? Only the good people go. So who are they? And how do you get to decide? And all of a sudden, we're back in with fairness, which is going to be one of those kind of recurrent themes, I think, tonight. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to say with Josh is that um, a lot of times the question of hell, uh, Josh said it was psychological. I think a lot of times it's emotional, too. We have this doctrine of hell, right, or eternal separation from God, or other ways to talk about it is eternal death or a variety of things. That's fine. That's wonderful. But as soon as I say there's the possibility that you could be separated from your creator for all time and while that's happening, you'll think that's the right thing for you, all of a sudden we get a little more emotional. And so having the conversation about hell or heaven, although a lot of this is focused on hell, and I don't think I've ever gotten to say it this much in church, <laughs> even being a pastor— um, Lutheran. Even, well, you know, there we go. Um, a lot of it is going to be emotional, and our knee-jerk response is, that can't be. That can't be. Um, and, you know, sadly, I, I think it is. Uh, but that will very much color how I talk about heaven and hell. I would just add that this is, I think, a much more modern problem than maybe okay. some of the other things. Yeah. And because we live in a society and a culture that is, so privileged and kind of on the edge of so much comfort and convenience, it would be hard to imagine anybody deserves anything other than that. And so the modern mind is a hard, and I think maybe if we had the discussion in the year 700, like we'd be arguing, no yeah, yeah, it'd be like everybody's fine with hell. Like we took a poll, everybody's in favor. Like it's right. just, we, so we're, we're obviously a product of our time as all people are, and this is our moment to sort of wrestle with this, so. Right, yeah, that presupposition of hell was definitely there in Jewish culture. When Christ was, you know, it's not like he had to convince people that there was a hell. So, yeah. Okay. Um, back to one of our farm questions, so this will go to you, David. Um, how can a loving God send someone to hell? That's the, that's the one right there. That's the Super. <laughs> okay. That's why you got these two guys to, you know. It's, it's really it easy. You just point toward Oregon. Oh, sorry. Wow. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. Couldn't help myself. Um, you're going to get the Lutheran answer uh, first um, because this is bound up in our anthropology, the way we see the relationship between God and man. Okay? So uh, for us, the answer is he doesn't. You start out as a embryo, as a baby, separated from God because of your sin, right? We back this up with Psalm 51, where it says, I was conceived in sin, I was born under the rule of sin. And so you don't 
you're already separated. You've already got a broken relationship. So it's not like you start off as a baby having robbed liquor stores and, you know, kip, kick people in the shins and, you know, run over household pets and stuff, right? This is a, you start off with a broken relationship. And I see a lot of babies here, which is fantastic. I love babies. And now mine is almost two. But moms, you've got a broken relationship with that kid, especially at two and three in the morning when they won't go to sleep. Yeah. And I've got four, and they team up on me. Right? It's a tag team. Oh, it's terrible, okay? So all I have to say is that you've got a broken relationship with God, right? And so it's not a matter of God sending you to hell. You start with the default programming, okay? Not all Christians are going to believe this. Again, I think especially we'll get some Calvinists, you know, raising their hands and saying no um, on this. But so that's our answer is no, no, you send yourself there by continuing to live in this broken relationship, continuing to not have these interactions with Christ that he offers for us, um, for us as Lutherans, you know, partaking in the sacrament of baptism or, you know, for other Christians, we talk about making a decision for Christ. And that's all on a different day. But that's how that ends up happening. Okay, so the question is, is couched in fairness terms and wants to besmirch God and his loving kindness. But really, what it really comes back to is it just feeds back on us because God's never been the problem, right? It's always been us. And notice here, again, for us to, to push this back into the Bible where the Lutheran in me will be really comfortable, right? If you remember in Genesis 1 through 3, God gives us a few different rules, right? This is your garden. Take care of it. Name everything in it. Be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, but if you eat of that tree that I told you not to eat from, what's going to happen? I will surely, this is the Hebrew translation, I will surely wipe your name from the face of the earth. Not just I'll kill you, I will uncreate you. And so in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve leave the garden clothed, having been taught enough to survive in a sin-ruined world now, this is gospel. This is grace. God didn't uncreate us because of our sin. There's loving kindness right there. And then Jesus dies for us. Right? I know there's some time in there, and I won't kind of get into <laughs> some 4,000-ish years that happened between Adam and Eve and Jesus. But Eve is expecting this. Eve is expecting this because in chapter 4, it says that she and Adam have a kid, and she names her first child Cain. Did I get that right? It's not Abel. It's, it's Cain. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know. Yes. Uh, and if you read in Genesis 4, and I see Bibles out there, uh, you can read. And she said she actually thinks, right, that business of the curse at the end of Genesis 3, the, what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, where God says to the serpent, you will forever crawl on your belly and eat the dust of the ground, and you will strike at his heel, and he will crush your head. Eve thinks that Cain's the one who's going to do that. She says, today I have begotten a son, and her mind is instantly going to that snake, to Satan. Okay. So this is another sort of God moment where it is goodness and loving kindness for us. And so um, it's really not a problem with God. It's always been a problem with us. So I got a little excited and talked a little too much there, maybe, but...
This is a normal thing with David, just so you know. We love him for it. Too much. He'll probably need a glass of water at some point. <clears throat> so far, so good. You want to respond to that? I, I will. I don't you want me to suggest it? I don't care. Okay. I didn't know if we were like... <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man, what was the question? <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot. I got lost Loving in, in David's, David's mini-sermon. <laughs> Loving God. It was a mini sermon. It, it was, was, and it was what, four it was minutes. Beautiful. I mean, we're quick. It was good. Sermonette. Um, yeah. How can a loving God send us to right? Yeah, I had a thought on it, and I forgot it. Yeah. Excellent. I'll just jump in here. Yeah, you <laughs> perfect. Just, you go for it. Uh, so, the model, of course, in, in different thinkers have thought about this question. There, obviously, the classic C.S. Lewis line is, you know, when when God sends someone to help, you want to use that frame. Uh, he's basically saying to people, thy will be done, right? The same way that when we, we submit to God, he's, we say to him, thy will be done. So God is simply giving us what we're saying in our heart we want. Um, the sending part sort of makes it seem like he's maybe like the, you know, the warden of some institution where he's putting us in solitary or something. But essentially, in any loving relationship, and this is true whether it's parent and child, or in my case, I experience a lot teacher-student, at some point, if... If, there, if that relationship is broken and the person who um, is in this sort of the receiver role, the student, the, the child or whatever, at some point if they're resistant to those, those overtures of love or, or kindness or instruction or wisdom, at some point the only loving thing to do is to let them go. Because otherwise you become some sort of um, overbearing tyrant who is simply just um, turning them, twisting them even more in on themselves. And it, it's it's a very sad thing to come to a point with a person, and maybe we've all been there in our own relationships where you're like, right now I just have to let it go. And I don't think God is letting it go the way we might, but I think that might be in a small way an illustration that's helpful to understand that the, the, the teaching on hell is really teaching people that individuals are so precious to God that he refuses to force them to submit. He loves them that much in their nature and their character as his image bearer that they don't, um, that he, re he, he doesn't in his nature um, reprogram them or, or force them into a relationship that they don't want. Yeah, I was reminded of just the fact that it didn't start with Adam and Eve. Honestly, the whole thing with hell, again, started with Satan. It started with the angels and the rebellion in heaven. And what happened was... Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve fell into the, the same rebellious state. This was a punishment that wasn't reserved for hum humanity. It was a punishment that we came into because we chose to pick sides. And we chose to move in that direction. We chose to, to side in this great rebellion. And we do it over and over and over and over again. And... What we see again, and I think both, both of these guys are completely on point, is, is not the focus on, on hell and how we sinned, but instead God's focus is on my children screwed up, and now they're going to suffer this, and here's what I'm going to do for them. And that's, that's really what it is. And, and I do think that the, the, way that, the, the way that the question is phrased, which is common, and that's fine, um, does does push a certain bias out there. Um, not that it's necessarily intending to, but I do think all humans have that bias, and we sort of started out with that bias, right, where we, 
where we asked the question, like, or where we said to God, it's the woman that you gave me, right? The woman that you gave me was the one that, that made this happen. And in the same vein, like when we, when we ask that, that or when we talk about hell, it's the hell that you made as opposed to the hell that we decided to walk into because we weren't listening to God. That's what I got. Also, one of the biggest cop-outs ever, right? Yeah. Like, don't, don't blame your wife. If, if you're married, this is a bad idea, right? Just don't. So just to clarify, um, I'm not going to word the question like that, but God allows us to enter hell the same way he allows free will. Yeah, and I think Romans, what, Romans 1 talks about specifically, like, the knowledge that we had about God, we chose to turn against that, and so then God allowed our minds to become cloudy and debased and do all sorts of vile things simply because we refused to admit God as God. And that's exactly the lie that Satan was telling in the Garden of Eden to Eve that she fell for, that we in turn fell for. Okay. Well, now that you're done talking, we're back to you, Josh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So David mentioned um, the sacrament of baptism. We had someone ask online just now, can you get into heaven without being baptized? Yes. 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 Home run. Okay. <laughs> is there anything you want to add, this add is, to that? So let's be clear. This is not to say that baptism is not important. It, this is not to say that baptism does not mature you. This is not to say that baptism does not have a spiritual significance and so on and so forth. But if today I, as a non-believer, found Christ and then was immediately hit by a car before I was baptized and I died... Of course I would go to heaven. That's, yeah, of course. Well, and you have the promise from Jesus to the thief on the cross. Right. Last time I checked, and by the way, thief is a bad word there. The Greek word lay states there really means like back alley mugger, knifer. He's killed people, okay? This isn't just like a pickpocket or something. This is a really bad dude, okay? So he belongs up there, and he and his co-conspirator companion agree on this you know, like, we deserve to be up here because we killed somebody, you know, for 20 bucks. Okay, not 20 bucks, but you get the point. But what's Jesus say to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. I'm pretty sure he had not been, this thief on the cross, had not been previously baptized, okay? My twitching up here is really the, why would you want to be when baptism is offered as something jesus tells us to do jesus sanctifies he says come on in he offers the holy spirit first peter 3 says baptism now saves you as you know we can talk about that on a different day but it's still there in the text so my question is if you're a christian are you baptized let's go do that and if and that should kind of follow in short order all sorts of crazy sort of circumstances where we can imagine where a christian will come to christ to not be baptized but um, it's been the regular thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll point out, even some of us might um, want to extend that well to our uh, Muslim brothers and sisters as they convert. Because if you're found to have been baptized, it's much, much worse. Because in Islam, they understand what baptism is and does. And this is bad. 
And to a man or woman, every single one of them say, no, of course I'm getting baptized. I'm a Christian. Right? And they come to Germany or the U.S. or they do it in secret in wherever they're living. And this is amazing. So, yes, of course you can be saved and go to heaven without being baptized. But why would you want to when you could easily do it? See me afterward. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This question jumped out at me, so you get the privilege of answering it. Uh, John. <laughs> we'll take a break from hell. Um, is there sex and marriage and new children in heaven? I know for a fact that there isn't marriage because Jesus said there wasn't. I think we're all in agreement about that. I mean, I might interpret it, but yes, you okay. said that. Uh, as to the other two things, um, I don't feel confident in making a definitive statement either way. Um, I think that sometimes that question gets asked, so maybe I'll work at the root of it, and then you two can clean up the theological part of it. Yeah. Um, because sex is, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of has been deified in our culture, and it's maybe the, the height of what we could imagine is the human experience, and it is pleasurable and something that everybody's kind of consumed with. Uh, the idea of going to heaven and then not being able to engage in it almost seems like a kind of hell. And so uh, we, again, might need to expand our imaginations a little bit in our understanding of joy and pleasure and intimacy. Um, of course, um, you know, God created sex, and God, uh, in, in some way, it's supposed to be in the intimacy of metaphor for our relationship with him. Of course, we see in the Song of Solomon, maybe it could be interpreted that way. But I think my point is that if we, we look behind the question a little bit, I think sometimes there's a little bit of like nervousness when that question is asked, because is, it, is heaven really going to be as great as everybody sold it on? And if it's not, like I'm not sure how excited I should be. And so I just want to say, be really excited about heaven. And uh, whatever you can imagine of as being really good, there's probably things even better than that waiting for you there. So um, that's kind of the best way I could approach that. I, I will be definitive and say no. Um, because the Sadducees come to Jesus and have this whole story about this black widow or somebody who's really, really unlucky. Uh, doesn't matter. She doesn't exist, right? Um, and he says, no, that's not how it works. And the entire reproductive cycle is there so we can be fruitful and multiply and fill in our God-given role from Genesis 1 and 2. Notice the be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth is before the fall. This is really important for stewardship of the earth stuff. Yes, you do have to take care of it. You do have to. It's a good gift from God. With that said, you can subdue it in a good, sinless way um, as God intends. So that, that there, I, I'll just kind of put out like, no. Okay? Um, why would we be making new children in heaven? Um, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Also push back, and so, you know, the heaven for, for Lutherans and for uh, Christians in, in the past has always been kind of a gloss as an intermediate state. When you die, you go to be immediately with Christ. This is very true. You're there with him. There's his promise to the thief on the cross. Amen. Okay. We have these beautiful pictures of heaven from Revelations 4 and 5 and a terrifying picture of heaven from Isaiah 7. Um, but the promise is resurrection of the body. Christ will come. Job, is it 19 or 29? I can never remember. 
I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see him, I myself, with my own eyes. And so, you know, we keep talking about heaven, but I'm not waiting to go to heaven. Heaven isn't the good news. The new creation is. The resurrection of the body is. And I preach a lot of funerals. I do a lot of funerals. And the good news isn't that Grandma Schmidt, and we talk about that because we're German Lutherans. Grandma Schmidt didn't die and go to heaven. That's not the good news. God gave her a new body. And the cancer or the Parkinson's or the, you know, bus accident, whatever that one, that is undone. That's the good news. And it, the question becomes a little more, not, like, a little less sensical in the new creation. Because everyone who's there, or who's supposed to be there, is already there. And now we're talking about adding new people? Yeah, I mean, from a theological standpoint, I would, I would have to agree. I do think that there is a speculative um, space where you could be a Christian with right doctrine and still speculate on the possibility of those things and um, still hold hope for them. Um, but doctrinally, that's not really founded. So, I mean, I, th I think it's okay to, to hold hope for those things and maybe even, um, I was going to say eisegete, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Pull things out of context when you're looking at scripture. Um, and, and I do think there's, you know, there's a context in which Jesus, for instance, says that there's no marriage in heaven that doesn't necessarily mean that he was saying there's no marriage in heaven. I mean, he was, he was arguing a philosophical point about who you're married to. Um, but with that said, can you make a doctrine out of that one passage um, either way? You could. You could. But you'd be wrong. Right. Um, so when it comes down to it, what matters is how you live your life here and now. It doesn't really matter whether God could create new people or allow new people to be made in the new heaven and earth and all of that. It doesn't matter. So it's not really worth our time what, what you're saying about you know, resurrection and the resurrection bodies that we have and the promises that are to us here and now, that's what matters. I would also say that relationships between, you know, men and women and, and the marriage relationship, the covenant relationship is meant to reflect the relationship between God and himself and gives us a better understanding of that, which then becomes sort of unnecessary when you are in God's presence the way you will be in heaven. And so you will not be unfulfilled because you are not with your marriage partner because your marriage partner is your marriage partner and that relationship, which while we're talking about it, it sounds grand, but those of us who have been married understand that it's work and it's sometimes hard. Um, you, you, you will have, I love my wife, we get along fine. Um, you, will, you will have a, you'll have a much more fulfilling relationship with God in the new heaven and new earth. Do I think that you could speculate that you could still have a relationship like that that does reflect that? And, and even just for God's sheer artistry, he allows you to have a relationship like that that better reflects that in the new heaven and earth. Sure. Is it doctrinally sound? No. Is it a waste of our time? Absolutely. But it was fun. I mean, yes, <laughs> it's fun. Do you have anything you want to clarify, Jacob? Um, um, so I like what you said uh, with the body being reunited with the Godhead. Um, and I think 
that um, what you said as well is um, like with the aspect of it being beyond our imagination where that question kind of limits what is possible when you go to heaven. I just wanted to bring light on those things. And then when you basically gave the um, idea that what is happening throughout your life, um, you are now, I kind of got lost. I was trying to put together what you two were saying, but then from the end, as you enter heaven, those um, um, limits that question has no longer matter. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like, it's bigger than that now. And if you wanted yes. to have a relationship like that, you could, but there's so much more happening. Well, it, we just, it kind of goes back to the why would you that, that David was talking about with baptism. It's like, why would you? Why would you think of the relationship that you have here on earth, no matter how good it is, as being some sort of emphasis or focus um, when you're in the presence of God? So okay. could that be the case? Maybe, but it doesn't matter. And Jesus, Jesus was very clear in what he was saying to them when, when he made it clear, like, the focus is not going to be on who you're married to on earth. It's going to be on your relationship with God. Yeah. So that's where we should be, on our relationship with God. When right. we think about that. And growing in that while we're here. Well, when we're thinking about the future and, and heaven, there's no point in us thinking about whether we're going to be with our husbands or wives because God will be the focus. Does that make sense? Yeah. David, I think we're to you now. Just a reminder, the microphone doesn't bite. Just saying. Um, David, how does the reward system work? You are rewarded for your faithful work. What does that mean? That's somebody's question online. Uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. Is this uh, like the storing up treasures in heaven thing? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I guess I'll start here on earth because that's actually true too, right? If you behave yourself here on earth, things are, good things are more likely to happen to you. The converse is also true, right? So you rob liquor stores, don't be surprised if doing five years with the state shouldn't come as a shock, <laughs> right? And when we work on good habits here on earth, right, that does have a good payoff for us. We should be doing that, right? So there's a reason that your mom said don't cuss because it's a filthy habit. And, you know, uh, I've heard of people not getting the job because they said a wrong word, right? If we're talking about rewards with um, uh this broadly, in the spiritual sense, this broadly falls under the category of sanctification. Mm. Uh, and I want to focus here again on earth, too, you because... clarify what sanctification is? Oh, I want to hear you ding him. <laughs> yes! So now that is the mark of shame. I've made it all this time without really being ding. I'm still dinging myself. Good. Okay. You're usually pretty disappointed. Sanctification is the process by which God makes you 
the you he wants you to be. And generally we call this better um, because it's from God's perspective, right? So as we do those spiritual things that we're supposed to do, those good deeds, God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, uses those to make us morally and spiritually better. And he's the one who chooses which ones those are. Okay, so I can't say, if you go and do this, this good work, or this good deed, God will use that to make you a better person. Well, that's actually up to God, right? And sometimes people will go out and do that and nothing happens. And sometimes people do it accidentally and it's transformative for their life, okay? So I don't want to shirk talking about that because that actually is something that's important to talk about here and now because God does use our human activity here on earth to make us into the people he wants us to be. And a lot of times that's wonderful and we get a lot of feedback and we pat ourselves on the back and it's great. And a lot of times that's really crummy and lousy and we feel like God is using us and we, we look at St. James who says, give thanks in your suffering and say, he's crazy. I don't like that. Or Jesus in John chapter 15 when he says, uh, I am the vine and God is the vine dresser and he's coming to prune you. Okay. Just kind of, we should all shudder a little bit because it's a good thing, right? But not, I don't know if I've ever met anybody who enjoyed being pruned um, by the Holy Spirit, okay? So finally, we're off to talking about good works meriting stuff in heaven. Um, yay. Um, I really don't know how this is supposed to work, right? Because the gift and the, the promise is resurrection, eternal life with our Lord Jesus, and I'll be fine if I have a room by the ice machine. Um, I, I, I mean, literally, right? There, I mean, there's there, but by the grace of, of God, you know, go, go I. And so if I make it in, which I'm pretty sure I will, but I'm also really full of myself apparently right now, um, uh, I'm going to be ecstatic. So this business probably comes from the parable or the teaching part where Jesus says, lay for, up for yourselves treasure in heaven. I think this is more Jesus talking about not being focused on worldly goods. And um, there's something in one of the Gospels in the story where the farmer says to himself, and this is the dangerous part, soul, you have many good things laid up for yourself for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And when he says to himself, not just, hey, you, you, things are looking good and your portfolio is fat, he says, soul. And I think that in Jesus' actual, uh, as he's talking about this, not storing up for yourselves treasures on earth, I think that's actually the part that nails us. Because we have full assurance of everything we've got lined up here. So I'll close with something from Luther in his large catechism. You can go and get it for free online. Go forth and do. But in talking about the first commandment, right? No, he's, he's, he's a good read. Um, says the Lutheran. Um, but he says, and this is kind of telling too, he says in the first commandment, having a God is nothing other than placing your ultimate fear and trust. That's what makes a God. And for us, that's either our assurance of salvation, sometimes that can become a God. I know our money can become a God. Boy, howdy. Our retirement, our families, our self-assurance of other people's affection for us. Um, so that's one that I'm always, you know, really quick to because I have lots of hope <coughs> in all sorts of things that aren't God because I'm human. Could you read it just one more time? 
make sure I... Yes, so this was someone's question. How oh. does the reward system work? You are rewarded for your faithful work. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, I might disagree a little bit with David on this, just in that I think that uh, there's enough hints in Scripture in the New Testament that speak to this notion of responsibility. You could call it rewards. You could call it crown. You know, whatever the metaphor might be, might be uh, useful there for you. Um, I don't know. I don't pretend to know how it works. Um, you know, I, I'm reminded when uh, I think it was uh, the mother of James and John went and asked, right. "Hey, is it possible could my sons have the seat here and here?" And Christ is like, "Are you sure you know what you're asking about?" Um, so I don't need, think we should necessarily focus on that, but I think the parables that Jesus taught, and I think even the, in 1 Corinthians 3 when it talks about, um, you know, every man's work will be revealed for what it is, and some will be just barely escaping, as though escaping the flames, and others who have built on gold and silver, you know, these precious metals, in other words, a foundation of God's treasure. I think that that distinction is there. I think the distinction is meaningful, but I, I think you're right in that, if that was the motivating factor for, for you know, uh, boy, I sure am laying up treasure in heaven today so that instead of the, <laughs> instead of the room next to the ice machine, like I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to get comped with the VIP lounge at the top or whatever, uh, that would be probably the wrong way to approach it. But I think every soul should have a confidence that God is watching us, that he sees our work. And, you know, I, I've, I've told people this, that when it comes to heaven, there's somebody laboring in some obscure position somewhere halfway around the globe um, that nobody knows of and nobody would ever consider, and there won't be a book written about that person, and there won't be anybody who will lift them up at a memorial service, um, but that person is going to enter heaven like a superhero, okay? And I think that that, that again, speaks to um, God's justice, and it speaks to his love and his care, and also... Um, his real compassion for his for his workers, for the people that he that he's called to be his children. So, yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I think David probably alluded to it. Like, this is who God is. Um, he's a God of order. He's a God of structure. And just because it changed for us, the state which we are in changes for us, where we are no longer carnal and sinful, but we are, have been remade. Um, that doesn't mean that it changed for God. And, you know, he, he delights in his workers doing a good job. And so, to me, it makes sense that when we go to a place to be with him, that he would uh, shower us with his blessings and, you know, that that, that would come with, um, how would you say it, an increasing scale dependent on, on, how, on how we act. But again, let's be clear, the reason why that works is because our intention is not to act for reward. It's just, it's just sort of an awesomeness relationship where, you know, we get to partake in a truly beneficial relationship with somebody who truly loves us and treats us well and takes an account of what we do and, you know, notices that. Yeah, I guess I have no problem with, with that. You know, I'm just stuck with trying to figure out. You know, and it's a waste of time, by the way. What the currency is, <laughs> what you're going to use it for, right? What inflation in heaven looks like, <laughs> right? What's heaven's GDP? Heaven's commissary is going to offer better candy bars for those who have. Yeah, except for Josh, it's just fried chicken and pixie sticks. 
Nice, nice. Well, gold is gold mansions, and yeah, it's like, what happens when everything is made of gold? I, yeah, I think we'll actually honestly know, you know, who's there, how we got there, and um, th there will be a sense of rightness. And so I, I do think there will be a little bit of, uh, ooh, St. Paul, right? Because, mm. I mean, I want to meet him. He was the first Lutheran. I'm kidding. Um, sorry. No. <laughs> um, I can't help myself. Um, so, you know, I think there will be. But, you know, the, the kind of questions, you know, in terms of rewards, like it, I don't want to monetize the new creation. I don't want to monetize right. heaven. And I can't figure out what we're going to use them for. So in right. some ways I've just decided, yeah, I'm not going to worry about it. It'll be, when we talk about fairness, it will be fair. Do I add anything? Basically, um, I just would say that scripture talks about it a lot, um, like all throughout, that our um, works and um, us being a living sacrifice to God is, um, you know, is going to see persecution and a rough life um, if we choose to be passionately living for God, but he will award us as um, we make it to heaven. You'll, we'll, we'll see the fruit of that. Is that basically what's being said? That's biblical. Yeah. We have our first, we have a trailblazer here. Go ahead. I heard that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Is this true? And if so, will we live on the new earth? That'd be to you, Josh, starting. Yes, it's true to both questions. Yes. I would say an emphatic yes to that. And I think learning that truth, uh, as a child, sometimes you have the, you know, the heaven, the hell, the good place, the bad place. And these are abstractions that are hard to wrap your mind around. Um, but when you think about a new heaven and a new earth, and I, I just think that it's much more helpful for me to think about eternal life within the context of God making everything new. Everything that we know here that's somewhat familiar to us, maybe the, the vaguest hints or shadows of that will remain so they're recognizable. But again, they're so much better. They're not tainted by sin. They're not tainted by evil. They're not tainted by our own self-centeredness or selfishness. All those things that, that we experience have been, in a way... Um, yeah, totally renovated um, by God. And he, he's made something new that we can inhabit um, that makes sense to us. That's a, that's a logical place that, um, that we can inhabit that's been uh, to his glory, but also with us in mind. Yeah, you can read about it. Uh, I think I'd start in Second Peter chapter 3, and that's the part that starts about God is not slow, as some count slowness but waiting for the fullness of time and keeps going. And then it says that God is going to burn the earth down to its building blocks and then he's going to remake it. Um, so that's awesome. So it's a little bit more than just, you know, changing the carpet and stuff, right? That, that's the idea here. The issue here is that um, humans are really worried about human sin, right? And when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our salvation and rising again, don't forget that part. He didn't just stay dead. Um, but when we talk about that, that's a really human worry, right? But we're not the only thing that's messed up here. 
creation is groaning. There's some scriptural re- words for you. And every time we have one of these natural disasters, and I mean like a real, like not just the, the fires in the gorge, although that's a good example, because um, the gorge got dry enough to catch fire, right? But I mean like hurricanes and earthquakes and all sorts of terribleness. That's the earth not working right, right? This morning I read that the largest geyser on earth, on planet earth, erupted three times this last year. And immediately my mind went to, Oh, nuts, super volcano under, under Yellowstone, we're all going to die, right? Oh, no. But, but it's broken, right? And the only reason my brain goes there, other than I'm kind of anxious by nature, is because the world's broken, right? And so God promises that we're going to, or he's going to fix that. And by the way, no amount of our fixing that is going to fix that. Yeah, and, and just let me add to that, that... <clears throat> That's a promise that you should really drive home in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that you will, if, if you are a believer, you will participate in this, this new earth. And there's something to be said for the old earth pre-sin to give you an idea of this. You know, Adam, he was quite the man. Like, if you look at what he did, he knew all the plants. He knew all the animals. He was a botanist and a zoologist, and he explored creation. And we sort of have this idea of, you know, in our everlasting state, sitting on clouds and playing harps. But I really think that scripture supports the idea that what we are going to get to do is play in a completely new playground where we get to explore the wonders of God's creation. And it's, that's just an amazing thing. It's an amazing promise, not just for us, but as David was stating, for creation itself. Everything now working in tandem the way that it's supposed to. It's an amazing thing, and it's, it's a great bookend for all the things that came in between. Um, I feel like we could talk about this particular topic for a long time, and I appreciate the um, science of it, and um, I just would say that it <laughs> is clear and evident that those things are happening right now, and um, it's something that we can look into more. But I like what everybody's saying. All right, this gentleman's question will be for you, John. Um, so I want to keep this about heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but going off of this question is, I mean, yeah, I think it's First Thessalonians 4 and 5 that says the elements will burn with fervent heat, right? So it's going to be completely wiped out. So in God's, like, mandate for us to care for creation, um, if this earth is going to pass away, why is it wrong to litter or, or, or not recycle? Because I try not to use paper towels or, you know, uh, I live in a dorm, so I take a towel with me when I use the, the like public restrooms, things like that. Why does that matter? Why, if this earth is going to pass away, um, just keeping it about heaven and hell, because it's obedience to God, man, caring for creation. But if it's going to go away, why does it matter how we live? Yeah, he's from my church, so. <laughs> uh, so I used to be, I think, a lot more of the attitude, that's eh, it's going to burn. So whether I put it in the garbage or the recycling, does it really matter? I'm still not convinced it really matters. But uh, I, I just want to, I think that, I think it's a good question in that um, when God gives us, his children, responsibilities, we don't, we have to mind those responsibilities 
as if there'll be another generation and another generation and another generation, since no man knows the day or the hour um, when this is all going to take place. It's incumbent upon us as people who have been given a mission, and that mission obviously is evangelistic, it's, but it's also obviously uh, stewardship-based. And so in both of those, uh, we, we heed the call until there's no more call to heed. That's really the, the way that I would answer that question. You've got kind of a twofold approach. First, earth, even though it's broken, is still an amazing blessing from God. Okay, it's kind of like getting a brand new 2018 Lamborghini and there's a teeny tiny little nick in the paint down by the tailpipe. I'm still taking wonderful care of that car and I'm still going to do 170 up 84, right? Because that's what that was made for. Hello, Pendleton. Uh, <laughs> the, the other response too is, we don't know when God's going to do that, right? And in the short term, man, we got to live here. And um, so there would be wonderful things uh, that we could do to make it a little nicer to be here, right? Litter, not littering is one of them. Not clear-cutting the gorge is another great idea, right? And so uh, we should be aiming at being good stewards um, and kind of protecting the gift that God has given us. Um, I, I will say Christian stewardship, and I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Christian stewardship is, is different than environmentalism. We have a different goal. We have a different aim because we know that God's going to take care of it at the end. Right? As opposed to environmentalism, which says if we don't do this right now, then we are terrible and it's the end of the world. So plant trees, recycle, be environmentally conscious. I'm looking for, I guess, now metal soda straws, if you know where I can get some. My I, wife can tell you. I'm kind of serious about that, right? Like, so am I. My so wife, my there, there are things, and, and it is a legitimate question, especially you know if it is going to burn. And I, I grew up as a kid in North Idaho, and we totally had the, you know, bury it, let it burn <laughs> sort of thing. Now I live where there's lots of people, and I can't do that. I'm reminded of the great theologian Ian Malcolm, who said they were so busy trying to think about whether they could that they didn't stop to think whether they should. And <clears throat> the thing is, our barometer of whether we should do something is based upon how well we reflect the character of God. And the character of God is one of order. It's one of, you know, caring for his creation despite the fact that his creation is marred. He loves us despite that, and he treats us like he loves us, and he makes concession for us to become better, not worse, simply because we have marred ourselves. So the reason why we should take care of creation is because to not do so is a violation of the character of God. A really good resource to look into this would be uh, Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you guys have ever read him, but he's really, really interesting. And um, <clears throat> I think it's uh, is it the abolition of man. I can't remember. Just read all of Francis Schaeffer, and that would help you. Cool. Um, I think we're at today. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Jake? Okay, cool. Um, we're up to David. Um, <laughs> Where do children go when they die? We get to be the bad guy or the good guy, maybe. I don't know. Depends. Go for it. That's why you're up here. 
See, now I like this evil cackle before you read the question. Right? Awesome. It just was your turn, okay? Man, it's like they're stacked up here. Um, the, the question is kind of, why do you want to know? That's a, a pastoral response. I can do the theological response in a second, but why do you want to know? If this is just something that you've always wondered about, you're going to get the theological response. If you've had a miscarriage or if you've had one of your children die, you're going to get a different response from me. Okay? I'll probably start off with God works for the good of those who love him. And the word of God never returns empty. And talk about that because this is a pastoral care question. Man, I didn't used to get choked up about this, but now I've got four kids. So from the Lutheran perspective, again, we don't have an age of accountability, flat out, which is one of the reasons Lutherans believe in infant baptism, because that baby's relationship with God is broken from the day it, it's conceived. And so um, it still has relationships, though. And if you're a parent, you know you've got a relationship with this one or two day old baby. And mostly, it's, if it's your first one, it's fear. <laughs> if it's not your first one, it's joy and excitement and you're trying to pick out whatever, you know, stuff with the baby, you know, it's got uncle whatever's eyes. And, and if it's your second or third or fourth, then you're busy trying to decide who's going to change it, even in the hospital, not it. <laughs> By the way, guys, do yourself a favor. If you're in childbearing, just change all the diapers in the hospital. There's gloves. You know, it'll be fine. I say that because they're really bad. Um, so for Lutherans, the answer is, is um, all appearances for humans point to preset is not going to, is going to be eternally separated from God. And so for us, that's why we will push, and I know we're not going to do baptism or, or for until like, what, season two? Yes, three. probably. Okay, so for, for me personally, I will say, uh, in a pastoral way, I really want to talk to you. If we're just talking about the theology, the answer is, um, does not look like there is a free pass to heaven for children, for babies. Okay, and again, the Lutheran faith has a, the Lutheran version of Christianity lines up on this point with the, the, um, the ancient church, um, partially part of the ancient church and just saying, look, we have a way of taking care of this. Okay, you don't live in limbo until you're old enough to get baptized in our, in our church. We just are going to baptize you and bank on that promise in 1 Peter 3. Okay, and I know we got wild disagreement as I might be the only Lutheran in the room here. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but that's our perspective on it and I think um, coming from, I grew up as a Baptist and, I, and a Quaker and um, some other things. Um, so I've, I've definitely been around the block. Um, and my issue, and I don't want to like pick fights and stuff at, on this, is um, I've seen kids and they definitely know they're sinning. My kids have known they were sinning. Maybe that's just because they're special and they're pastor's kids. Um, and I knew I was sinning. And I'm one of those weird people who has one of those memories, uh, which is how I ended up as a pastor. Um, or one of the reasons I ended up. So I remember being teeny tiny and knowing I was doing wrong. Okay, so uh, that's kind of my response is, um, I don't like to say that. I wish it weren't the case. I do have a mechanism inside of the th my theology of how we take care of that, <coughs> right? Like the day after they're born or if something looks hinky 
during the birth, call me. I'll be right there. Just because we don't know. But we do have promises in 1 Peter 3. Baptism now saves you. And that's about the only when This is the worst possible thing that can confront you, right? Death of a child, death of a newborn, stillbirth, miscarriage. Um, and so it's not this light sort of, yeah, who cares? Um, I've never had anybody ask me this question who didn't have behind it because I had a miscarriage, because one of my kids died because of this or that or the other thing. So... Um, we get a wildly different answer out of you guys, I think. But uh, <clears throat> yes, so David mentioned the age of accountability. Um, there is a—I don't know if you call it a doctrine or a dogma—but there's a theory of the age of accountability, which basically just says that if you are under a certain age where you are not accountable for your for your actions, where you don't really understand the consequences of things then you can't really come to a saving knowledge of Christ because you're not really responsible for your actions and, and you, you don't understand the implications of things. So <clears throat> what do we do with that? And then you go further into that and you talk about how there's a sort of a salvation for families taking place within Judaism and so on and so forth. And, and you come to this sort of idea that if you are under a certain age and you are not able to be accountable or perhaps you have like a, a mental disability or something, that you then are, that you have an instant ticket to heaven. I don't know what I think about that, if I'm being honest. Um, <clears throat> I understand what David's saying. I don't know whether I agree or disagree. I don't think that it matters from, you know, whether we're Christians or I don't think that that makes us Christian or not Christian. Um, I know that a lot of Baptists, which is what our church freely associates with, uh, I know that a lot of Baptists hold the idea of an age of accountability. Um, and I'm okay with it if you do. I just don't know what I think about it. What I do know is that God is a just God. That's what I know. I do know that God does not leave any of his creation out of, um, without the ability, uh, ability is not the right term, let's see, that God will not leave his creation in the dust. So um, he has a plan for every life, and he holds all life to be sacred, and that he will figure it out, and I don't need to know the answer to it. And that may seem like a cop-out, but it's just being brave enough to be honest. So I, I would simply say that, this isn't simply saying it, but I, I would say that uh, probably um, in terms of the scriptural um, foundation for an age of accountability, uh, I think there's some hints there, but again, I, I don't know if it's enough to hang a doctrine on. Um, I probably would not fall in the camp of finding that Infant baptism would be a mechanism for ensuring that that would take care of the, uh, the salvation issue. So that would be an example where we might disagree. We um, disagree for sure. But I would say that we, you could expand this question out, and I think it might be helpful to do that in this point, because children um, are very emotional. This is an emotional question, as you pointed out, David. Um, 
This question gets asked in different ways, though. That if you take children out of the question, uh, what happens to the person who lives in some remote jungle somewhere has never heard the gospel, right? What happens to them? That would be another type of question that's often asked as we talk about the question of hell is uh, what, what's God going to do about those people? That doesn't seem fair either. And uh, what you said uh, about the, the, the justice of God, that we all firmly trust that we have to, otherwise we believe that everything's just going to be settled willy-nilly, which is not uh, what scripture lays out. Um, I, th I think it's always probably unwise to ask the question about other people other than yourself with regards to, am I going to be able to judge whether a child or not? Am I going to be able to judge whether the person in the remote Brazilian you know, rainforest is, is or not? Because scripture always brings it back to, what do you know and how are you going to respond to it? And sometimes we get put into double binds as people trying to answer these questions because it is ultimately unanswerable. I can't answer for you or for you this question. I can answer for me about what God has done in my life and that I listen to your testimonies. I can, I can trust you on that. Um, but it's ultimately God's work, right? And so as we expand these hypotheticals out to other types of people, other situations as well, sometimes that can be, I think, borderline unhealthy because um, the Bible seems to always direct it back to the individual, self-examination, right? Work out your salvation with, with fear and trembling. Uh, these injunctions constantly bring us back to what's our position before God? And, and God seems to be saying, you know, I, you know your, your job is to let other people know. Um, you know, I think of Paul in, in Acts when he talks about, you know, for a while God sort of let people be idolaters. That's a rough paraphrase, but, you know, God winked at that sort of disobedience for a while. And so God has a spiritual economy that he's working under, which is holy, wise, and just. And for me to answer on a matrix of who's in and who's out, um, I know the only thing for sure is that the only way to heaven, okay, is through the work of Christ. I want to poke on this for just a second back here. Um, as a Lutheran, I just can't leave it um do it okay so a few things we talk about this being the work of christ this is wonderful and uh, in the lutheran theological framework one of our biggest questions is who's doing what we should know what's my responsibility what's god's responsibility and so for us we answer the question we always say it's god's responsibility to save me he does this in his economy of salvation by sending his son jesus christ he does this by wooing me through the Holy Spirit. He does this through the waters of baptism. Um, he does this and continues to sustain it through Christian fellowship, reading the word, prayer, communion, these sorts of things. Um, but God is always the one who's working salvation. Okay, so that, that's coming from, from our perspective here. So in the age of accountability, it kind of comes back, can God save? The, the real question is, could God save your, your baby? Well, yeah, he totally could because he's omnipotent. So that, that's kind of one of the, the, my, my poking points that I can't quite let it go. Is it us who gets us into heaven or is it God and his grace? The other question I have, and this is more for folks who do the accountability thing, uh, which you guys seem a little less excited about doing, so I'm going to kind of throw it back at you. Um, if we're going to say there's an age of accountability, we're all fine with the Christian part. That's awesome. What about all of the 
children who happen to die worldwide who were never going to be Christians if they lived. And I know this is kind of a contingent thing, which is a bad way to look at theology or salvation anyway. But are we saying that all children everywhere, by dint of being children, just go to heaven? Because that seems a little suspect to me. Just because you're a certain class, you get to opt out. So I'm a little nervous about that because we were all fine and good with age of accountability if you were eventually going to become a Christian. But now I'm nervous if it's all children or all uh, people with mental disabilities everywhere for all time. Does that seem a little unfair to you? <laughs> no, it just seems weird. So, I, you know, this is... <coughs> this I, I'm done poking, by the way. This, I just, is, one of know, those, this like, is one of those things where... Um, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is the diversity on top of the structure. And a really important thing about Christian maturity, and honestly just maturity in general, is understanding that people can have the same facts and come up with differing conclusions. And as long as the same basic facts are the same, then, you know, it doesn't really matter. We can still communicate with each other. And this is one of those things where, you know, John has a certain set of facts. David has a certain set of facts. I refuse to have facts about it. And, and, I, think that, and I think that this is where we're at, and I think it's completely fine and good. And this is where, I mean, we talk very um, sort of flippantly using terms. Well, here we don't, but using terms like sanctification. But that stuff was argued, you know, sometimes for a really long time. So it's just, it's a discussion, and it's, when it's a pastoral discussion, as David was talking about, it's completely worth having. Right. But otherwise, it's not. Well, I'll double down and say, Josh is completely right, because we do just have the same Bible, literally, right? All 66 books. There are 66 still, right? Awesome. Um, and we use different passages to support different things, and I'll build a case from the Bible, and then Josh will come and say, well, what about this, this, and this, and this? I don't know. You're wrong. I'm kidding. Well, it's Josh. Like, Josh is a little more likely to say that to me. I am greatly more pastoral toward... No, I'm kidding. Um, but what I will say, here's the rub, though. 